0: To the RMBC Life podcast from Share Cancer Support, dedicated to exploring life with metastatic breast cancer from the perspective of us, the people living with this disease, and the experts who partner with us to help make our lives better. I'm Lisa Laudico, and I'm really glad you're here since no one should face MBC alone.
1: Pitzer, Metastatic Breast Cancer Program Director, Senior Producer, and Host. In today's episode, Anne Woodward sits down with a special guest to discuss the ins and outs of having MBC while living in the public eye. Get ready, folks. You're not going to want to miss hearing from Kelly Crump. She is the first ever sports illustrated swimsuit model photographed while posing on a picturesque beach in a gorgeous swimsuit the mastectomy scar for all the world to see. In this incredible interview, Kelly explains how she embraced social media to live out loud, and in doing so, harnessed all the attention to be an inspiration and help her 30,000 plus followers.
0: Kelly, we are so thrilled to have you with us. Cancer is such a big part of our lives, but I thought we could start with what was life like before cancer? What was your life like? What were you doing? Where were you living before cancer kind of upended everything?
2: I have made sure that I have probably upended cancer a little bit and done things slightly differently. I was living in London. I was working in management, overseeing some operations throughout Europe with a large American famous luxury retailer. Life was good. I had been newly married. I was in the midst of a new phase in my career. I was approaching my 40s. I had friends. I was living in London. I had been in London for almost a decade at that point. You know, life was was kind of good, but I think now that when I look back on it, I would say 12 months prior to actually finding the lump and having the diagnosis, I did not feel good. I felt really run down. I thought maybe I was working too much. It wasn't like I was at this peak pinnacle of life and then all of a sudden everything came crashing down. Actually, it was the lead up to the diagnosis. I knew something was wrong with me. I just never thought it was cancer. I thought it was an autoimmune condition. I thought maybe I had rheumatoid arthritis. I was Googling all of these things because I was actually quite ill, but I never, ever Googled cancer at any given point because I was 38 years old without any family history of breast cancer. And I had no other kind of signs and symptoms. There was no reason for me to really think think about cancer.
0: How did you find the cancer? Take us through your diagnosis.
2: I was really exhausted, like to the point where I would come home from work probably about 7 p.m. and I was in bed by 8 p.m. I was 38 years old. I've always been physically active, energetic, go-getter. I traveled for about six years consistently weekly across Europe in and out of the country, I've always had a very kind of dynamic, demanding, but also on my feet type of role within luxury fashion. And I couldn't do anything. I was going to bed at 8 p.m. I couldn't go for runs. I was full blown, exhausted, had lost probably like 10 pounds almost overnight. I was lying on the floor on a Saturday tired. (laughs) My husband had gone for a run, and I was on the floor watching TV. And I remember I was like, just couldn't move to do anything. I was so tired. And I felt an itch on the bottom of my left breast. And I went to scratch that itch, and I had a very soft sports bra on. And I felt something strange. Pretty much where my breast and my rib met, I felt a lump. It was hard, but not super hard. And it kind of moved around. And I was like, that's strange. I googled it and saw that could be a sign of breast cancer. And it also said on the website that I was on, which was CopaFeel. They had so much great information. It was so simple. It said to go stand in front of a mirror and look to see if you had any redness, dimpling, discharge, any of those things. I went and looked in the mirror, didn't see anything, couldn't see the lump, and literally raised my arm above my head, like it said, and there was dimpling underneath. I feel like in that moment, I said, oh no, this... Really could be, and it's probably cancer. And then from there?
0: This was a Saturday.
2: So on Monday, I saw my GP had a referral, and I had private insurance because I could have gone on the NHS, which is an amazing thing here, but it does take longer than if you have private health care. So they said I could be seen the next day versus waiting two weeks to be seen on the NHS, which the NHS has a standard where you have to be seen within two weeks of finding a suspicious lump, and it has to be investigated. So that is still great. If I can be seen tomorrow, I'm seen tomorrow. I saw the breast surgeon. They did an ultrasound. They said they wanted to biopsy it, and I knew it was not good news. Three days later, I was diagnosed with stage 2 invasive ductal carcinoma, And then five days later, I had a lumpectomy. I mean, it was, things can go very fast in this country. And I think I've been very lucky that my employer provided private health insurance and I signed up for it. I got in really quickly and it happened really quickly. And they did not know at the time whether I would need chemotherapy or which route we were going to take dependent upon the lab results. And we got the lab results back and I was... ERPR positive and then HER2 positive, or you could call it HER2 positive. It's different in each.
0: So you're country. triple positive.
2: Yes, I'm triple positive. I did one round of IVF because they said my ovaries might shut down. We hadn't had children yet. Did one round of IVF. They told me it was going to be safe. We did ask, you know, if I have ERPR positive, was it going to be okay to be injecting myself with these hormones? They said yes shouldn't be a problem. We had 20 eggs retrieved and 10 embryos. They told me I would need chemotherapy. I started in January of 18 with six rounds of Paclitaxel, Carboplatin, and Herceptin. I had lots of issues. I was hospitalized multiple times. And then long story short, I went to have my portacath removed. And one of my nurses said, you need to have a PET scan. And I thought she was being crazy and too uptight, she wouldn't let me schedule in my port cath removal until I had a PET scan. And lo and behold, I had grown a brand new tumor that was one millimeter larger than my initial tumor.
0: Wow. And without that nurse, you wouldn't have had the PET scan? No, I wouldn't have. When we got those results back, my
2: oncologist said to me, who allowed you to get a PET scan? They're quite expensive. He said, I don't know why she did that. And we look at the results and he goes, oh, well, the radiologist must be being too sensitive about this because it says there's something on here. So we pull the scan up. There's definitely something there. Then we go talk to my surgeon who had done the lumpectomy to see maybe if it was potential scar tissue. And no, it was a new tumor. Within a week, I had a bilateral mastectomy with delayed implant reconstruction, and I was to have chemotherapy again. So I challenged my oncologist, given that nothing had technically worked for the last six months, that I wasn't going to do any other chemo until we figured out what chemo would work for me. I said, there has to be a way. I started researching and basically found that you can... Profile tumors, but you know it wasn't something that was done and really looked at unless you were stage four. When did stage find. four come
0: into your life?
2: Basically, I did seven rounds of capecitabine with perjeta and herceptin, and in November of nineteen is when we did the routine scan and saw that it had grown and spread to my nodes and my neck, some into my armpit. At that time, it was just in two places. That's when I was categorized with stage four metastatic disease or secondary, which it's referred to a lot here in the UK. It's crazy how many different words there are that mean the same thing. And I think it needs to be simplified
0: because I think it's confusing. Right. We can't even simply call it one thing. It's advanced, secondary, metastatic stage four. Yeah. How did you decide to live life with this disease so publicly? Did that come right Uh, at the beginning or did it come later? I am from the generation where we didn't, you know, Facebook
2: didn't exist until I was late 20s, I think. This whole kind of life and being open online and putting everything out there, like I didn't really do it. (laughs) But it came because I was at an event where basically I was a customer for a fitness brand and they had brought me in to give feedback at their corporate spring launch party, which also coincided with their Christmas party. And it was myself and two other people because we were speaking and they mentioned something about having chronic pain or something. And it was before I was to speak. And I kind of was like, well, should I tell people I've got Cancer, (laughs) so I did it. I didn't know what type of reaction I was going to get, and I actually got this reaction of people saying, "I can't believe you said that." Like it kind of started opening up this conversation, and that's what started it a little bit for me. And then the second thing was, is I had this cancer page, so I had my own personal Instagram, and then I had an Instagram cancer page. I thought I needed to separate. The two, the normal Kelly and the cancer Kelly. I have a dog. So I was in the park, I was out chatting to someone and they say, oh, I follow you. I follow your sad page and your happy page. That really hit home for me because I never want someone to walk away and think, oh, that's the sad page and that's the happy page. And this is who I am and this is part of my life. And I thought personally I needed to separate it because of other people. But I was wrong. That's what I've learned this whole time. Like I've been wrong. (laughs) Every time I talk more and more about things, like the feedback was really, really good. And I finally asked people, what kind of content do you want to see? What else should I post about? And it was like cancer. We want to know more about cancer. We want to know about your treatment. We want to know about what you're doing. And
0: so here I am
2: talking about about it, I
0: read somebody describes you as a cancer influencer on social. <laughs> Does that resonate with you? How do you see yourself? I'm actually the one that came off with that because I didn't grow up in this age
2: where, you know, sometimes you talk to younger children and they want to be influencers or they want to be YouTube stars or that was never anywhere on my radar. So I was making fun of myself in a sense. Then it just kind of stuck. I think we don't have to be these separate cancer people like people need to be aware of it and okay with it and know how to deal with it talk about it support other people and you can do that and be an influencer at the same time so yeah i kind of
0: invented (laughs) that title (laughs) we became aware of your story through the sports illustrated swimsuit issue and the articles that came out about you. And it was fascinating. Yeah. Tell us how that came about to go from living out loud on Instagram to yeah. taking this step to share your story to this wider platform.
2: I grew up getting the magazine and the mail and waiting for it to arrive and always used to watch the behind the scenes films that they would do on Sports Illustrated. It was a big deal growing up. So I always just dreamed of doing it being in the magazine. They did open castings because of COVID starting in 2019. And a friend of mine said, you should do this. And I thought she was crazy. And so in 2020, I submitted myself, but we were in lockdown. I took photos in my back garden with a ring light and I did it, didn't hear anything back. And then in 2021, my friend was like, you have to do it again, do this, do this. And I was like, okay, fine. What have I got to lose? I found out I was cast in 2022, did a video casting and found out like a week later that I was fine to the Dominican Republic. I was just amazed and
0: thrilled and excited. How did that feel, sharing your diagnosis so visually and in words to such a large audience? Fine. I think it ended up
2: being my idea, You could try on any suits and see which ones fit you and which ones they would want to shoot. And I had seen this suit that was on a table and it was the colors of the Ukraine, but it was like in a ball (laughs) on this table. They said, oh, well, that's a one boob suit. And I was like, oh, really? Because I had seen Elle McPherson shoot a suit like that. But covering her breasts and her nipple. And it was just very powerful and athletic and sexy all at the same time. I was like, Oh, I could do that. It maybe show a bit of scar on either side because I don't care. It's just scarce. We started talking more and more. And I tried the suit on and it looked nice. And I think MJ looked at me and she was like, You would do this? And I was like, Yeah. I think it would be like really empowering to show that you can be sexy and still have this disease because so many of us don't feel sexy and you have treatments and scars and it just really messes with how you can perceive yourself and how you're projecting yourself out to the world. And so anyway, we we tried a bunch of suits on and the day we were shooting, someone said to me, okay, MJ's wants to shoot the suit. Are you okay with this? And I was like, yeah. (laughs) What actually happened was just pure mistake in essence. A lot of people asked me, was that all planned? How did that go about? And it was not planned whatsoever. (laughs) I think just meant to happen. And it was also representative of showing you can own it. It doesn't make you any less of a person, any less attractive. It's just a scar. It's just slightly different from the rest of your skin. But it doesn't mean that you have to just hunker down and, and hide. I didn't know they printed it and used it. I didn't know they were going to use it either. Like, well, How did you find out? Oh,
0: I found out when I got the magazine. <laughs> Are you serious? Yes. So there was yes. no discussion with you about using it? They just went ahead and did it? I'd signed a contract and everything. I mean,
2: I I knew what I was doing. I saw the images in terms of what it looked like on the screen. And there was a discussion in the moment around it. And I loved them. I thought they were awesome, but I took a lot of other awesome photos too. So I didn't know what they were going to choose now. So I found out And you might have seen it kind of went viral. Someone asked me, like, what did you think when you first saw it? And I said, well, I thought F (laughs) for 30 seconds. And I do say this because I think it's the reality is I was like, oh, my gosh, what have I done? I hadn't done really any large scale professional modeling either at this point. So there was 30 seconds where I was like, oh, did I make? the right choice like literally everyone <laughs> I mean everyone is going to see this my neighbors are going to see it my in-laws are going to see it and I also didn't know how people were going to react to it I think there was some fear inside of me of there will be people that applaud it and it does help them but is there going to be hate as we a lot of times see nowadays with things and it was like crickets which I found, it was interesting. There's nothing. Wow. I kept waiting for it to be, you know, either way. And there was nothing. At one point I was like, well, I don't think anybody saw it. <laughs> but I've learned a lot of people did see it. But I think it was so different than a lot of times what we see. I think people didn't know what to say which is fine. I know that a lot of people saw it, and I know what it meant to a lot of people and what it's done. I mean, I would do it all over again, a million times over. In the beginning, I was really worried about it. But it was one of those things, sometimes you do things and you don't really understand why you do them, and maybe you're questioning yourself. But really, they were the things that were supposed to happen, the things that were supposed to work out. I wanted to show it, but I wanted to show it in my way and not be sad because I had not seen anyone do any type of photography the same way that Sports Illustrated did it with me in a mastectomy scar and an implant.
0: Speaking of your scar and your implant, I was going to ask, how did you make the decision about reconstruction or not? I didn't have a lot of
2: options, to be honest. My surgeon who had done the lumpectomy said, okay, you need to have a bilateral mastectomy like ASAP. The gold standard is to do a flap, and he walked me through all of that. I think from the timing perspective, it was so quick. I was bald because I had just finished my last round of Paclitaxel, so I had lost my hair. I had gained close to 30 pounds. I did not look like myself, and they were telling me, we have to remove your breasts. Everybody makes different decisions, and at that point in time, I could not be flat because I was just already having such a crisis with how I looked and not because it was a bad look. It was because I didn't recognize myself. So they talked about the flap. I did not have enough tissue. (laughs) And they said, well, the only other way is implant. And we went to the plastic surgeon. The plastic surgeon was like, no, you have, I can't even do anything. You have nothing. So I went with implants. And he said that the best cosmetic result was going to be from a delayed implant reconstruction, which is where they do the mastectomy. And I did not do a nipple-preserving mastectomy because I didn't want any more chances of getting cancer. We had tissue expanders, used saline, filled them up. I started with anatomical implants, and those did not do very well with my very tight chest muscles. A year later, I had them switched out for round silicone implants. People ask me all the time, what type of implants? How many cc's are they? You know, I get it all the time. I almost feel like I need an automatic response on Instagram. And I always tell people, everyone's body is different. Someone could have 450 cc's. And look completely different from you having 450 cc's. So it is more about what your surgeon recommends, how your chest is laid out in terms of your rib cage, how much skin you have, et cetera, et cetera.
0: You mentioned an organization earlier called Field. And one of the things we like to do on the podcast is highlight organizations that are doing great work for women in breast cancer. And I know you recently walked across the Sahara for them. Yes, Can you I tell did. us about that experience and also just a little bit about why CoppaFeel has been important to you and maybe a little bit about what they do?
2: CoppaFeel is the UK's first and also largest breast cancer charity for young people. So the target is men and women under the age of 35 and just getting them to know about what to look for in terms of Just get to know yourself. It's not about you have to check for cancer. It's know what you should be looking for. Check your breasts. Check your pecs. Check the areas. Because if you do find something, you can have it looked at. And potentially, the earlier you catch it, the better the outcome. This was started by actually a stage four cancer patient. Her name is Chris. She was diagnosed with breast cancer and stage four metastatic cancer, I believe, at 24 so she started this Coppa Feel up. So like Coppa feel I always have to kind of say it that way. Because if I say it too fast, sometimes people don't understand. But she started going to music festivals and different places where there weren't cancer charities to really get the word out there. Because she was the same in terms of didn't have family history, didn't know she should be checking herself. They do these charity walks to raise money for Coppa Feel. And I did one in 2021. I walked 100 kilometers in the Scottish Highlands. That was such an amazing experience that I said, I'm doing these every single year that I can. And did 106 kilometers in the Sahara Desert. And then I will be doing another two this year, but I'm doing it as a patron for Field. So I am doing these walks now to be one of the loading support leads to go on the different teams, talk to people, keep them motivated, keep them going. And I'm just so excited. So we're doing Hadrian's Wall, which is the wall that stretches all the way across the UK. So we're doing that in June. And then in September, we are going to France and doing the Tour de Mont Blanc, which is so amazing because I've done actually that hike the year I was diagnosed in 2017. And that's kind of when I knew something was wrong with me, (laughs) but I hiked there before I was fully diagnosed. So they mean a lot to me. They are fun and new, and they really focus on people under 35. And I think it's so important because since more and more and more people are being diagnosed under the age of 40, I think it's really important that it's talked about the awareness is spread and then learning about it early because... Hopefully, if there is something going on, you can catch it, treat it, and hopefully not let it get to a point where there's a lot more treatment or it's harder to tackle.
0: You're clearly very busy. I'm curious. Are you still working? No. Something that comes up with a lot of people asking that question on social media is, are there people that are still working, not working? I'm just curious what your path was.
2: When I was initially diagnosed, I was like, okay, I'm having surgery. I'm going back to work. I've had a job since I was 13. I've never not worked. My situation is very different because it wasn't like I was diagnosed. I took this time off. I was treated and then came back out of treatment. I never came out of treatment. So each time I would do six more rounds, I would take a couple months off and then I'm going back to work. And that never happened. I just kept getting diagnosed and diagnosed and diagnosed. Now... I know i can't I can't work, and I am busy, but I'm strategically busy. I was going to ask you that
0: how you manage all that you're yeah. doing along with the mental and physical side effects that come with being in never ending treatment
2: Well, I was up until this last two weeks. I was having chemotherapy every three weeks i'm also in medical menopause, so I have ovarian suppression. So I have all of those side effects, which are lovely. But really for me, I never know how I'm going to feel. And I think in my role, I did a lot of big project management and overseeing of things. I can't really pop in and out (laughs) of things. I do know that usually the first week, week and a half, sometimes two weeks after my treatment, I'm knocked out. I don't plan anything, I don't do anything, even my dog gets walked, and sometimes I'm kind of a little bit better after five days, and sometimes it's a full two weeks. And it's nausea, vomiting, can't sleep, bone pain. I mean, it's the gauntlet of everything, and that's just the physical. It's not even talking about the mental bit. I know I have a hard time just processing things with the way my brain is now. I'm not the same person, which I think has been hard to finally say that about myself. (laughs) I think some people can work, but it all depends on your side effects. It all depends on how you're doing mentally, and it all depends on your financial situation. Some people want to work to switch off their mind and think about something else. I think... It would just make things really complicated for the type of role that I've always done. And then on top of that, I'm not going to be good at it anymore. I think that has taken a couple years for me to just be able to be open and say that. Like, I can't type anymore. I can't feel my hands from neuropathy. And it's to the point where I physically can't type. I'm better on an iPhone, but I physically can't type anymore. I can't feel my feet. I'm now wearing pain patches. I'm falling apart, but I don't look like I'm falling apart. And that's why I also like to talk about that because so many people are dealing with so many different side effects that people can't see. I know you guys know people always assume unless you're bald and sitting in a hospital bed that you're okay. And that you should either be working or doing something. And that's not actually how it is.
0: Has sharing your story and the work you did with Field, has that helped fill the gap of what you miss from your working life?
2: Yeah, I think because I did so much leadership and project management. I was overseeing seven countries and Europe. I had a lot going on. It's been really hard. And I think that first walk I did with Copa Field, I realized that was my role because There's 130 people and not everyone has had cancer. Some people had friends and family and things like that. I was one of maybe three people that had stage four. I was just in really good mental and physical shape where I helped people. Actually, we joke about this, but I almost basically carried this other person up the mountain (laughs) for five days. And she says she wouldn't have done things without me. Yeah, I forgot that I could motivate and inspire people that way. It's now kind of giving me more of a purpose and it does remind me that these things do matter and speaking about it does make a difference. Sometimes when you're just speaking into a camera or a video, you're like, this is this
0: really doing anything? <laughs>
2: like are well, people really in- listening to this? <laughs> you
0: know? Speaking of speaking into a video, I saw your latest Instagram live and you mentioned that the last two weeks have brought some change in your life. Do you mind sharing yeah. with Our listeners, where you're at right now and what's going on.
2: Yeah. So basically I was on my fourth line of drugs. I was on Kedsila and not really having any issues for 24 months. So that's really good. But I took a break over the summer because I had issues with my heart and then started it back up again and it has now stopped working. So I've had progression. I've got two new METs in my pelvis another one in each lung, more in my neck, and then some other nodes kind of all through my clavicle. And then anything I had previous to that has gotten to be about 17 millimeters. So it's not great news, but the good news is there is a drug that I can potentially get on once we biopsy one of my nodes and send it off to get profiled. I'm questioning whether I'm still HER2 positive or how strong HER2 positive the current cancer is because it's not growing super fast. The type of progression I have looks more like a a hormone progression than a HER2 positive progression, they think. So it'll be interesting to see. We're supposed to have a biopsy done last week. They looked at it. It was too close to the brachial artery. So then we're having somebody else look at it. And then if they don't think they can biopsy, then my surgeon's going to go in. But everything's a little bit up in the air at the moment.
0: So I'm just waiting. Sharing your progression and the way you did it on Instagram was very empowering and inspiring. And you really are living your life out there for people to learn from while you're going through your own things. And it's really inspirational.
2: Oh, thank you just felt like I kept seeing these progression posts, but you find out about it later and you have all these questions. I just kind of wanted to do something different. (laughs) I don't know. It seems to be my thing. Let's just do this differently. It's helpful because then I can tell everyone what exactly is going on because I've got people in different continents and friends and family all over. It gets really overwhelming updating people and when you're having to repeat that story over and over, sometimes I think it's actually not good mentally because you're just reliving this whole thing that you're trying to process and you're telling it over and over. And then you're watching the reactions. I've gotten really good feedback from friends and family and they're like, oh, I totally get it. You answered all my questions. And then when I do talk to them, we can talk about other things.
0: You can be past that and on to something else. Yeah. Yeah. So you've talked about physical side effects. You've talked about kind of the difficulties and like retelling and some of the mental side effects. How do you practice self-care? What are some tips that you have found that work really well for you? The
2: most important thing, and I never did this before, but I do listen to what my body is telling me. And if I'm tired, I'm on the couch. If I'm sick, I'm on the couch. I say no to people. No, I can't do that. It's five days post chemo. I get a lot of flack for it, but that's just the way it is. I have boundaries. I have boundaries with others in terms of what I sign up to do or not to do. The second thing is I prioritize my physical health in the sense of moving my body. A lot of people think I do this like crazy exercise. I walk. That's mainly what I do. I do run. I do some Pilates here and there, but I walk because that's what's kept me strong through all this. But I'm saying I walk on average 11,000 steps a day. I walk and I prioritize that because I know that's what makes me feel good. And I prioritize doing it outside. I think a lot of people underestimate how much nature can calm, even if it's bucketing rain like it does in this country. <laughs> I still get out because that's what helps me stay physically strong, but also helps my mental health. And then the other thing is, I meditate. I use guided meditation. I use the Calm app. It is probably one of the things I've used most consistently in my entire life. I've used it now probably for seven years, especially if I'm feeling emotionally heavy and my mind is all over the place. I make sure I sit down and try to focus and breathe and do a guided meditation. It doesn't have to be long. And that's how I get through. And then the last thing is if I'm upset, I just cry. I don't hold it in and I don't get embarrassed about it. Sometimes I've gone on and cried live, (laughs) which is really weird to me. But if I'm having a bad day, I just tell people I'm having a bad day. I think we have to get over this weakness or shame of crying or being upset or being sad. And it's okay to say today, I'm just not having a great day. I'm not in a good mood. I have no energy. I'm over this irritated that it's still going on. You know, I cried today. I was watching some TV show and it was this couple and one of them was ill and passing and it, I just lost it. But I think if you hold all of this in, it's not healthy and you can't move forward from it or it's just going to come out at some point, but it's going to come out at the wrong point.
0: I know you have a lot of uncertainty right now and not knowing what's next and you have Two walks coming up, but what are you looking forward to in the upcoming months? What's next for you that is keeping you going?
2: Some days I feel like I don't have anything. And I, I say that to be real. Some days I just feel like I don't have anything to look forward to. I'm like, my career's over. You can go down that thing. Yes, I have the walks and I'll meet amazing people. I think for me, I try to focus on like what is that magic that I can find in every day? Because sometimes, especially with the uncertainty, I I try not to overly plan ahead because I also don't know when my cycles will be, whatever drug I get on. I liked it better when I knew exactly when my cycles would be and what my side effects would be. Right now, I'm kind of like, uh, I don't
0: know. That's such great advice.
2: I've had a lot of issues with pain. I've met some of my spine and they've been really messing with stuff (laughs) and- I've been in so much pain recently, and sometimes I have to just sit on the couch, and that's a thing that I hate doing is just sitting there. But I've realized that you never know with life in general, not just with this cancer, but I might have issues walking or running if things get to a certain point with my spine. So I just need to be present in the moment each day and use that joy in those moments that I have
0: to keep myself going. Kelly, I can't thank you enough for your authenticity, your realism, your inspiration, your positivity. Thank you. It was really wonderful to talk to you and we thank you so much.
2: Oh, thank you so much for allowing me to talk (laughs) and for spreading it out there and, and supporting those who have metastatic breast cancer or breast cancer. I think it's so important that we're just open and honest and that way we can support one another and try to understand how each one of us is facing and dealing with this thing that we're dealing with every day. It's not easy, but I think we can do it. And I think we can all learn from each other.
1: I want to send a special thank you to Kelly for this inspiring interview. I hope you enjoyed the final episode of season six. Thank you so much for listening. This episode was produced by me, Kate vieira Fitzher and Miranda Gonzalez. Original music and sound design by Connor Kinsley. Our executive producer is Christine Benjamin, Vice President of Patient Support and Education at Share Cancer Support. I would also like to thank our executive producer, Victoria Goldberg, for her dedication and leadership. Please be sure to subscribe, rate, and review the podcast. Check out our blog and full episode notes at rnbclife.org. And follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at RMBC Life. Thank you and see you next season.